Good morning. It is good to see you guys this morning. I hope you guys have had a great weekend. Um, uh, last night, Marcy and I came back from our college retreat, uh, which this year's uh, theme was Heroes and Villains. Just a great time with students, and so a lot of them are still there this Sunday morning. Uh, but just a great chance, and uh, really the theme for the event was Heroes and Villains. And so between the retreat theme and between Halloween go- coming up on Wednesday, I was thinking of all of those superhero and all those costumes that a lot of us grew up with, and a lot of us are, will still be in this upcoming week. And I was thinking actually particularly about those ones where uh, maybe not the ones necessarily that you think back on and that your parents dressed you up and you think, Man, that was absolutely social suicide. As you look back, maybe kind of like this, right? Uh, I was thinking, what parent in their right mind went that direction, right? I mean, just horrible, right? Uh, or this was the one I found too that I thought was the best. <laughs> Not just the costume, but even the prop itself. I mean, that's just overkill, right? That's just fantastic. Uh, and so I, I know there were costumes that a lot of us had as we grew up, as we look back at pictures and we think, what in the world were my parents thinking, right? But I think a lot of us, though, as we thought about to some of our costumes, really we had childhood idols that we looked up to, that we dressed like, that we wanted to be, right? And so uh, for some of you guys, it might have been Superman. You thought, man, there's no height that Superman cannot reach. For some of y'all, it might have been Batman. There's no evil that Batman can't conquer, right? Some of y'all might have been Spider-Man. There's no, there's no building that Spider-Man can't, can't scale. And for some of you guys, it might have been Justin Bieber. You know, there's no note that he can't hit, right? Just kidding, right? Uh, the hissing's about to begin, right? Yeah. So I, I think all of us had those dreams and had those idols where we thought really as we grew up, man, there's anything is possible, right? Uh, these childhood idols, these people that we looked up to, we thought, man, they can do anything that is possible or humanly imaginable, right? And then as we've grown up, we really, in a sense, have grown up and out of that, right? Uh, we no longer are wearing Spider-Man underwear. At least I, I hope we're not, right? Uh, we're no longer idolizing those men and women. In fact, in many of the movies today that depict, for example, even Batman Dark Knight, we really begin to see those childhood uh, heroes that we thought could do anything. We begin to see them even now as flawed heroes, right? Uh, there are men and women who wrestle with demons in their past, demons that they have to overcome to even just barely save the world, Right? In many ways, I think we've begun to grow out of that kind of childhood fantasy that anything was possible. I think in much the same way, I think you and I begin to grow out of that even as we think of God himself, right? Uh, The idea that God could do anything, the idea that the miraculous is possible, I think in many cases that you and I have begun to slowly but surely grow out of that, right? Uh, It began a lot with our education and realization that really what is reasonable for you and I to believe is something that has to be proven by science or demonstrated to us to appear rational, That which is miraculous, that which is supernatural falls outside of the bounds of that kind of thinking. And so it's really the first chink in our armor of wondering really whether anything was possible anymore. I think for many of us, it's not just that maybe we wrestle with whether those things are still possible, but I think many of us really do live in a culture and we live in a day and time that more and more there's such a zeal for the experiential. I think there's such an openness to the spiritual today. I, even though I was thinking back to a few years ago, Marcy and I were on a vacation in San Diego. We were at a hotel in which there was a conference going on for magicians, all right? And so we were in an elevator, and this magician came on uh, into the elevator as we were going down, and he had this little magic book. I thought it was kind of precious, and so I thought I kind of engaged him. I was like, so, hey, man, how long have you been doing magic, you know? Like, bunnies out of hats or whatever, and straight face, still looked right at me, completely condescendingly said, I don't do magic. I'm a miracle maker. <laughs> I was like, whoa, <laughs> back the train up, you know, easy tiger, you know, what's the deal here? You know, I mean, he took it completely seriously, but he saw himself as a miracle maker. And I think even in a spiritual sense today, it's not just that I think our culture is open to the spiritual, but there are conferences and there are workshops today where you can go and learn to be not a magician, but a miracle maker. Where you can go and learn to not just participate in the miraculous, but to make the miraculous happen as one who is, would have all kinds of spiritual gifts to do the miraculous. 
So I feel like in, in the day that you and I live, we live in one hand where modernism is said to you and I, hey, if it's not rational, if it's not reasonable, if it's not proven, then you cannot believe it. But on another hand, we live in a day and time when there's such a great zeal and openness to the miraculous. And the question is, in the midst of all of that, how do you and I navigate today in that kind of setting, in that kind of culture? Particularly the question I want to ask us this morning, in a sense, is this one. Does God still perform signs and wonders, all right? Does God still perform signs and wonders? As we've been walking through the book of Acts uh, this fall, this semester, we've been seeing amazing story after amazing story, right? We looked at the beggar who was healed, the guy that had been sitting by the temple begging and sitting there for years and years. And finally, Peter and John come along and they tell him to rise and to be healed and to walk. We see the miraculous chapter after chapter through the book of Acts. And the question I want to really pose to us this morning is, is that still possible today? The things that we see in our Bible, the things that we see in the book of Acts, are those things still possible today? And if so, what do we do about it? How do we participate in that? How do we believe that's possible? How do we not overstep the bounds of what God has said? That's kind of where I want to move us this morning, because I think in the midst of our culture, there are, there are themes and there are movements and there are emphasis that are all over the place. And the great question is, how do we navigate that? That's where we're going to head this morning, all right? And really, what I want to do for us first, before we look at our particular and current culture and day and time, is I want to, in a sense, track signs and wonders as we look at our Bible. As we go from the cover of Genesis to the cover of Revelation, really, what do we see in terms of signs and wonders and miracles if we were just to track them throughout the scriptures? What do we find? It's interesting thing as we kind of walk through, we're going to see a lot in the text about miracles, but the question really that might be helpful as we start is what is a miracle? How do we define the miraculous today? I think it's easy to say that the miraculous really was this extraordinary work of God that was meant to arouse your awe and your wonder so as to bear witness and to teach you something about God. What are miracles today? They're the extraordinary works of God meant to arouse your awe and your shock so as to teach you something about himself. In a sense, they are amazement with a statement, all right? They're not just amazement to entertain and to just, in a sense, wow you, but they are amazement so as to teach you something about who God is and about how God is working in human history. They're amazement with a statement. And so if we understand, in a sense, what they are, then the great question really comes as we walk through our Bibles is when and where do we find them? What are the conditions in which we find a miracle? Because as we go from Genesis to Revelation, it's interesting, miracles don't occur all over the place. But as they occur, we find really this is what they're meant to do. Ultimately, in Hebrews chapter 2, we find that after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews is saying, here's the purpose of miracles. Not just that they're extraordinary works of God, but the purpose of them is that they're meant to bear witness of God himself. Not just that they're to teach you something about God, but ultimately when and where do they occur? They occur often as new revelation is spoken. So notice the writer of Hebrews is saying, as the Lord was speaking, there were great wonders and signs to accompany that to bear witness of the messenger and the message. That ultimately as miracles occur, they're really meant to bear witness to validate the messenger with the message that he's speaking. And for that reason, as we walk through from Genesis to Revelation, one of the things we begin to find is that miracles don't occur all the time. If they were not, if they were ordinary, if they were commonplace, they wouldn't therefore not be extraordinary. They wouldn't be really miraculous at all. The fact that miracles are miraculous is because they don't occur all the time. In fact, in Psalm chapter 74, we find this. Psalmist says, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. 
Solomon says there was a time in biblical history in which they did not have a prophet. They didn't have someone speaking the word of God. Furthermore, they didn't see miracles. It wasn't happening all the time. There were periods in biblical history that they were not occurring. In fact, even in the Gospel of Matthew, we find there's a portion of the Gospel of Matthew in which miracles are frequent, but then there's a portion of the Gospel of Matthew that miracles are not frequent. Uh, Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 12 that an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the earth. The book of Matthew is really interesting. There in chapter 12, there's really a pivot in the flow of the gospel of Matthew because the first half of the gospel of Matthew is filled with all kinds of miracles, all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders. But the second half of the gospel of Matthew is not. And really, there's a great pivot mark in the, in, in the book, chapters 12 and 13. Really, the second half, we don't find a lot of signs and a lot of wonders. In fact, Matthew chapter 12 really sets that up to say the last sign, the next sign that they're going to get really is that of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But other than that, in the sense in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is done with miracles. And then what he's going to begin to give them at that point in time are parables and not miracles. So not just through, the book, uh, not just through our uh, Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but even through the Gospel of Matthew, miracles do not occur all the time. All right, mim- bib- uh, miracles throughout the biblical text are a little bit like a cat litter box, all right? Bear with me here, all right? Uh, in a cat litter box, what do you find, especially after a few weeks? Clumps, right? <laughs> And what's happening is it's not the, the whole thing is one clump, but there are clumps that are interspersed throughout. And really what the miracles are like through the, uh, through the Bible are like little clumps throughout, all right? You don't get miracles interspersed evenly throughout the biblical text from Genesis to Revelation. What you get are miracles that are clumped up in little periods of time throughout the biblical text. Not interspersed evenly where it's just commonplace, it's happening all the time. But what we find from Genesis to Revelation is that miracles are not occurring all the time, but they're occurring in great clumps where they're frequent, they're extreme, they're huge, and then they kind of, in a sense, fade off the scene and we don't see them, all right? Miracles are not occurring all the time. And as we kind of walk through, the right question then is why? What is happening? It's interesting, even as we look at Matthew chapter 16, uh, or Mark chapter 16, at the end of the gospel, then Jesus will say, go into all the world, and he's speaking to his disciples, and he says, preach the gospel. And then these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak new tongues, they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So in the first half of Matthew, tons of miracles. In the second half of Matthew, not a lot of miracles at all. The book of Acts, as the apostles then go out speaking the gospel uh, throughout the world, tons and tons of miracles. So why? Why miracles sometimes and miracles not other times? Why do miracles begin to occur in clumps? And how does that really apply and begin to help us begin to understand whether we can experience miracles in our day and time? If the question is, do miracles occur for us today, then how does it help us as we look back at the biblical text? I think one of the things we begin to see over and over as we look from Genesis to Revelation is that as God brought new revelation to the people and to the world, he often then allowed and brought with that and accompanied it with great miracles, great signs, great wonders to testify and to validate the messenger and the message, all right? So it wasn't occurring all the time, but it really occurred in accompaniment with a messenger of God who was coming with new revelation. And alongside of that new revelation came great signs and wonders to validate the messenger and the message that God was bringing. So it wasn't occurring all the time at all. In fact, as we kind of walk through what we're going to begin to see as we look at our, in a sense, our generations, I'm going to argue to you guys that I think you and I live in a generation that in some regards wants to discount the miraculous, right? Uh, as you guys stand here at Texas A&M University or at Blinn in an academic education setting, that which is miraculous and that which is supernatural is by and large out of bounds, right? In a sense, you're encouraged and you're told that that which is miraculous and that which is supernatural is not reasonable, it's not rational, and so you should not believe it. 
And so really, under that premise and that line of thinking, you have to discount the great majority of the biblical text because the miraculous is everywhere. So I think on one hand, you have that kind of movement, really, that we know from the modern, uh, the modern era, and yet you and I live in the postmodern era. So this is still present for you and I that wants to discount the miraculous, but I think you and I live in a culture that is actually, by and large, incredibly open to the miraculous. You and I live in a culture today that is so open to the experiential that I think people are incredibly open to the spiritual and to the religious. And what they're wanting, what they're looking for is something that is experiential, all right? So it's not just that the televangelists who are healing people uh, on TV and encouraging people to send checks in are incredibly popular, incredibly affluent. Uh, but even back in 2004, the story was told of, of the Virgin Mary who appeared in a piece of toast. That same piece of toast was sold, you know, for how much? $28,000, all right? It's not just that we are willing to believe the miraculous, all right? But we're so desperate for it that we'll pay whatever we have to to get it and to experience it. I think by and large, you and I live in a culture that is really open to the miraculous and actually, I think, incredibly zealous towards it. And and I think for you and I, even as we walk through college, are very much, as we look at the spiritual experience, wanting something that is by nature experiential. We want God to be real. We want God to step into our lives and to move in very powerful ways. And I think that is phenomenal. But what's fascinating as we look at post-modernity is that there's a great divorce from that which is experiential, from that which is objective and true. And so as we seek for the miraculous, I think we have to be careful that we've not lost our bearings in that which is absolutely true and that which is what God has revealed to you and I. It's interesting, the very uh, leader of the movement known as liberalism is a guy named Frederick Schleiermacher, and he says this in the 19th century, as really religion came under attack, as religion came under the attack of science, saying that it was not true, Schleiermacher wanted to redefine religion, and notice what he's going to do, and notice its implications for you and I today, not just culturally, but even spiritually. He says this, To the culture at large, you reject the dogmas and propositions of religion. Very well, reject them. (laughs) Slyermacher is going to say, it's not about doctrines. It's not about objective truth. It's not about uh, books of theology. That's not what religion is about. They are not in any case the essence of religion itself. Religion does not need them. It is only human reflection on the content of our religious feelings or affections, which requires anything of the kind or calls it into being. What is revelation? Every new and original communication of the universe to man and every elemental feeling to me is inspiration. What is Schleiermacher saying? Ultimately, he's going to redefine spirituality. He's going to redefine how you and I even understand what is true. He's going to say what is true is not what is necessarily objective and external to you and I, but is what is internal and subjective. So if it feels right, then it's true, essentially, is what Schleiermacher is going to lead us to. And the result of that is that a culture will move into post-modernity and the Christian church will be completely gutted in a sense by liberalism and a movement that will completely redefine revelation and redefine truth. Thinking that the scriptures are not inherent, that they are not true. And even more so, what is ultimately essential to religion is experience. Okay, there's a part of that is true, right? Experience is very much what we believe is a part of walking with Jesus Christ. Jesus is not, a, God is not a deist. He's not one who created and then walked away, but God is one who's intimately involved with creation. He is not just transcendent, but he is imminent. He is part of creation. And he wants an inherent personal relationship with you. So it's not that God is external and just objective, but there is an, a subjective experiential element of walking with Jesus Christ. But what Slyermarker is going to do and what he's going to set up us for post-modernity is a movement away completely from the objective revealed word of God and a movement toward staring at our navels, looking within ourselves to determine what is true. If it's true as I think within myself and I feel the inspiration then from God, then it is true for me and my experience can validate it. 
what Slyermacher is going to do and what the culture that you and I live in is one that's going to divorce the experiential from the revelational. And in fact, he's going to find the experiential as revelational itself. If you want to know what God thinks of your life, if you want to know who God is, just look within, you'll find God and you'll find what he wants for your life. And your experience will tell you exactly what he wants for your life as well. Which really gets into, hey, if it feels right, then just continue on because your experience tells you everything you need to know. And yet experience is incredibly misleading at times. One of the things I love about uh, a guy named Jonathan Edwards is he's going to write, speaking of really objective truth as light, and he'll refer to experiential as, as heat. And he's going to talk about that light and heat go together. <laughs> they don't have to be divorced from one another, but they fit perfectly together. They go hand in hand, and that he's going to want to rise affections as high as possible because they are absolutely transformational for you and I. There's nothing wrong with having emotions uh, heightened. There's nothing wrong with emotions being increased as long as it is tied in with the word of God. And so for Edwards, he wasn't worried at all about the experiential. He wasn't at all worried about the ability to experience the miraculous because he thought that the spirit of God wanted to move in incredible ways in our lives to show us the impossible is possible as God comes and does things beyond our imagination. And so for Edwards, and I think even as we look at our Bible, there's nothing wrong with experiencing the miraculous. The question is, how do you and I experience the miraculous in a way that really fits with the word of God? In a culture that just wants experience for experience's sake, how do you and I experience the miraculous as the scriptures have talked of it and led us to say that it's safe to experience it, all right? First thing I think we begin to see is that when we experience the miraculous, again, it is all about the message. That it's not just the miraculous for entertainment's sake or for experience's sake, but the miraculous always says something to us about the very message of God itself, (laughs) The experience of of the miraculous always is tied to uh, the message itself. And so sometimes I think really the miraculous can lead to a kind of mayhem that actually can obscure the message. So one of the first things I want to remind us too is as we look for the miraculous, as we look for the experiential, it is never meant to obscure the message. It's always meant to highlight and go back to the message, the revealed word of God. Those go hand in hand with one another. In fact, as we kind of look at this concept, I think it's fascinating because there are times that really experience can mislead us. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses nine and 10 says that the Antichrist who's coming is in accord with Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness. That when the Antichrist comes in the future, he will come with signs and wonders and miracles. But, but Paul's gonna say, but be careful because those will be misleading and, and leading you to one who is not the Christ. In fact, John will say it this way in first John chapter four, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That ultimately the miraculous is always meant to highlight us back to the reality of who Jesus Christ is and the reality of what Jesus Christ has done. The resurrection is the key point of all miraculous events because it shows us that Jesus Christ is not just able to die in our place for our sins, but he's able to resurrect and show us that he has power over death and over sin. The miraculous always takes us back to the message, but sometimes the miraculous brings about a mayhem that completely distracts us really from what we're supposed to see in the message. It's fascinating. We'll see that in first John as well. And as we kind of go on further, it's it's here that I got a quote for you guys from Edwards. And he says this, I don't think ministers are to be blamed for raising the affections of their hearers too high. If that, which was they are affected with be only that, which is worthy of affection and their affections are not raised beyond a proportion to their importance. I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as possible, uh, provided that they are affected nothing but truth. See, Edwards is going to say there's nothing wrong with an experience that is miraculous. There's nothing wrong with an experience that heightens its affections as high as possible, as long as it is always in accordance with the truth. The mayhem of the miraculous cannot obscure the message that is connected to that miraculous event. The miraculous always highlights for you and I the message of God is always meant to draw us back to that. 
It's fascinating, even as we kind of look further, I think uh, that in many cases, as Paul will speak of the church's practice, and as we get into the miraculous, and as we want to talk about tongues or healings or different things, Paul's going to say something really interesting uh, very about this very topic of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He's going to say, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at three uh, at most, and in each turn, one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, for God is not a God of confusion. I think in, 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 in a lot of circles where there's great talk of healings and of tongues and of the miraculous, I think sometimes the mayhem of the miraculous can obscure the message, and what you have is not order and not clarity. It's interesting as Paul will speak of tongues and speak of the fact that he believes that tongues are possible and still something that the church will practice. Notice how Paul will lay out the practice of the supernatural within the order and the, even the, the very gathering of the church. He's going to say that those who are speaking in tongues cannot talk over one another, but one at a time. And they should not be talking unless there is an interpreter so that there's one who can explain to the rest of the church body what is going on. If it is just gibberish and is just miraculous for miraculous and experiential sake, but it's not allowed to be interpreted and explained to take us back to the message of the word of God, then it's not necessary and it's not even needed. And it's actually counterproductive in the church setting. So Paul's going to have no problem with a miraculous, but he's going to want to see it experienced and lived out within the church setting in a kind of way that is edifying and clear. In many ways, one of the things I want you guys to see is that I think Paul is going to have no problems with the experiential but he's going to make sure that as we walk through them, we, we realize that it is meant to always lead us back to a message. Because sometimes when it does not lead us back to a message, what begins to happen to you and I as we experience the miraculous is it becomes less about a message and more about a messenger. <laughs> that ultimately, instead of making much about a message that is connected to the miraculous, we begin to make much of the messenger who is evidencing and doing the miraculous. And then we miss the entire point altogether. That is never about the messenger, it is always about the miraculous. In fact, Simon in Acts chapter 8 will say this. Now there was a man named Simon who was practicing magic and claiming to be someone great, and they all were giving attention to him. Notice he's doing magical signs, people are being drawn to him, and for him it's all about attention to himself. It's all about whether people like him, it's all about whether people think much of him, and so there's great mayhem and there's great magic and, and mythical but it's not about a message. It's not about anything that's connected to who God is. And therefore, it's all about the messenger. And one of my great fears in our current culture, in our current day and time, and a lot of the movements that I see is that in the midst of a great openness to the miraculous, it is often not tied to the message, but is often all about making much of the messenger. All right. And I think in many circles, that's something that we see over and over again. Um, and so much so that, uh, let me just say, I, I, I'll tell you guys, as a church at large, uh, we are uh, not a church that believes that the, the miraculous has ceased, all right? We're not a church that believes that healings don't occur anymore. We're not a church that believes that tongues don't occur anymore. We're not a church that believes that visions and dreams don't still occur today. Uh, we are not a church known as a cessationist church that believes that those miraculous gifts have ceased. That is not who we are. Now, as you step into our, uh, our community, as you step into our church setting, it's pretty clear that there's not a lot of uh, healings occurring right here in a church gathering. We don't do that in the main service. We don't do that here in college class. Uh, you don't necessarily see spiritual tongues occurring. And so the question is, why not? Uh, and ultimately, uh, one of the things that I think that begins to happen in a lot of those places is that uh, one of the things that we're uh, concerned about is that, that, that what can happen is in the midst of those ex things being experienced, some will not experience them and won't be able to do them. And there becomes a great divide between those that are, can do the miraculous and those that cannot. 
And the great concern that we have, and I'll tell you that I think any church has, not just other churches that practice these kinds of things, is that there becomes a great divide between the Christians who are first class, who have a certain kind of gifts, and Christians who are second class without those kinds of gifts, all right? Now, we're obviously not a kind of church that, that heightens and great, creates such a great emphasis on uh, gifts or of healings and tongues that we see those as first class Christians, but we are a church that probably overemphasizes what particular gift. Most likely in a Bible church, the gift of teaching, right? It is possible to be in our midst and to think that those who have the gift of teaching are the most elite and mature Christians and those that don't, uh, those that maybe have the gift of mercy or the gift of faith are some kind of second class. In every church gathering, there's an ability to create a, a dissension and a gap between those that are seen as mature and those that are not seen as mature. I'll tell you guys that I think that in a lot of Pentecostal and charismatic circles that really do practice on a consistent basis, tongues and healings that have that as a very normative part of their church gathering, the concern I have often is that there becomes a gap between those that practice those gifts and those that don't. And those that have are seen as the spiritual elite and those that do not have are seen as the spiritually immature. In fact, it's, it's buttressed in some regards by actual Pentecostal charismatic theology. I want to take a quick aside to explain a little bit of this to you guys as you guys hear some of this terminology, right? In, in many of those circles, they will believe in what is known as baptism of the Spirit, all right? And so we talked a few weeks ago about baptism at large. We talked a lot about baptism. But in those circles, they believe that a person comes to Jesus Christ in a moment of conversion, but then there is a later event down the road that is known as their baptism of the Spirit. A moment later on, after they've come to know Jesus Christ, in which they come to this place where they commit the entirety of their lives over, and they say, Jesus, I am yours. And at that moment, as they pledge incredible allegiance to Jesus Christ, and they hand the entirety of their lives over, a moment occurs, according to them, that, that is known as the baptism of the Spirit. And at that moment, what is uh, put upon them are, are the supernatural gifts of healing and of tongues and of miracles. And it is for that moment, later on, after conversion, for those that have really truly pledged their life over. So obviously, the implication then is if you are not practicing the gifts of healing and the gifts of tongues and you are spiritually immature and you do not have all that the spirit wants to hand to you. I think there's something incredibly wrong with that kind of mindset. Not that gifts and healings and tongues can't still occur. I do think they still occur. But the kind of idea that they occur only for those that have gone further in their spiritual life and it is a second step or a second step for those that are spiritually elite and spiritually mature, that is simply not true. That the baptism of the Spirit is something that occurs the moment that you trust Jesus Christ, recognizing that Jesus died, was buried, that he was resurrected at the moment that you trust Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, you're promised eternal life. And then at that same moment, we believe that God imparts all of the spiritual blessings that you will ever have on your life, all right? In fact, uh, in Ephesians chapter one, Paul says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, the moment that you trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, he not only forgives you of your sins, promises you eternal life, but he also bestows on you every spiritual blessing and it's yours. He's not holding anything else back from you. From the moment that you trust Jesus Christ, he hands it all over to you. Second Peter chapter one, verse three, Paul says, uh, or Peter says, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. At the moment that you trust Jesus Christ, uh, it's not just that he wipes your debt clean. It's not just that he removes guilt, but he promises you eternal life and he hands over to you all that you need for life and godliness. He hands over it all. The moment that you trust Jesus Christ. So there is no gap experience later on in which he then hands over more to you. It's not that the spirit is holding anything back from the moment that you trust Christ. He hands it over all to you. Now, the moment that you trust Jesus Christ and he hands you all the blessings in the heavenlies, do you know how to appropriate and use them and build them into your life? No, right? 
Uh, I think it's still popular today, but a lot of times when uh, guys and girls get engaged, they start to have wedding showers. And uh, there's a lot of guys that I had, a lot of good friends, that for the guys, they would have a tool shower, okay? And so at the moment that they're engaged, all of a sudden they get all the tools that they need for a future marriage and a future home. And I'll tell you, at those tool showers, I would look at some tools and I would not know what they were, what they were called, or how to use them. And I don't think my buddy did either, all right? So from the moment he's going to get married, he's going to have all these tools that he has no idea how they're used. But he's got them all, all right? And he grows into learning how to use them and how to implement them, just like you and I grow into learning how to use and implement all that the Spirit of God has given us as he's indwelt us from the moment that we've trusted Jesus Christ. Let me give you guys another analogy or illustration of that. Our little baby boy Colt is about six months right now, all right? He cannot walk, all right? <laughs> he cannot crawl, all right? He's just learning to sit up. But a day is going to come, uh, maybe in about six months, when he's going to learn to actually walk and he's going to begin to move and walk on his feet, all right? But from the moment that he was born, he had all he needed to walk. It wasn't as if we get to a year one at his one-year birthday and then we unwrap for him feet, right? You're ready to walk. Here's your feet. That's just weird, right? That's just not how it works, right? He has all he needs to walk from the moment that he was born. Now, as he matures, as he grows, he grows into the feet that he has and he learns how to use them. And I think he's going to be a giant six-foot guy that's going to beat me up one day, but he'll grow into that, all right? He's not there yet, but he has all he needs from the moment that he was born to walk and to know Jesus Christ and to serve Jesus as he's been gifted, as he's been gifted and designed to be, all right? And I think in many ways, one of the things I want you guys to hear is I think in many Pentecostal charismatic circles, there's this great thought that at the moment that you finally hand your life over, a baptism of the spirit occurs. And then finally the spirit who has had all these things for you, who's been holding them back, finally hands them off to you. And that's just not true. That's not what the scriptures are saying. And when that, what that does say and what that does create is a gap between those who are first class Christians and second class Christians. And the reality is we all have gifts from God. We all have spiritual gifts that are used to the edification and to serve the body of Jesus Christ. And we have different gifts and we have different gifts to different measures. But each of us has gifts and the gifts that we have never create a gap between those who are first class and spiritually elite and those who are second class. That is the kind of division that we see in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul wanted nothing to do with. And one thing I want to say to you, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, is that you have been gifted for service. And I want to ask you, do you know your gifts? And if you don't know your gifts, don't worry, because you're going to have an opportunity as you continue to walk with Jesus Christ to learn those, to grow into them, to figure out what they are, and to begin to figure out how to serve him better and better within the church body and within the community at large. And it's a process of growing and maturing and knowing who you've been designed to be and learning what gifts he's given you. Because if you do know Jesus Christ, then you have been gifted for service, gifted for purposes that he has uniquely for you, not things that he's still waiting to give to you if you'll just obey a little bit more. It's not how the Spirit of God works. It's not how the Spirit of God gifts. It's not how the Spirit of God blesses. And so one of the things I want you guys to hear this morning, if you know Jesus Christ, is that there are no spiritual elite and spiritual immature. There's none that are gifted to a place that we should all revere them and think, oh, these guys are high and mighty, and there are others that we should just go, oh, I guess I'll just do something small. <laughs> and God has gifted each one of us for something grand and something large that he's calling and, and maturing and leading you to accomplish and to figure out. And it's a process as we figure that out slowly, but surely as we continue to walk with him. And one of the things I love, though, about our Pentecostal and charismatic brethren, I'll tell you this, that I, I feel like they really overcorrect for us an emphasis that we have in the Bible church, and especially in an academic community. Uh, some of our uh, some good friends from college just moved in town. They're helping lead a charismatic church here in town, and I see them as great brethren in the faith. And one of the things I think that they help us with is realizing in a fresh way that the miraculous is still possible today. 
that as a Bible church, especially in an academic setting, we are intellectual and we can explain away the miraculous. I can pay lip service to it, but when it comes down to it, do I believe that God can do something miraculous today in the midst of the kinds of things I'm hoping for and praying? Reality is sometimes I don't. (laughs) Sometimes I need brethren in the body, the wider body of Jesus Christ to help remind me and to stretch me back to a more moderating position that reminds me that, hey, God can do something miraculous and he can and he still does. And I expect it in missionary settings where the gospel is going to places that have never heard it and God is going to accompany the missionary's message with miracles and signs. And so in the Muslim context, I pray for dreams. I pray for miracles. I pray for the miraculous. But here in my own setting, in my own life, there are times where I know that he can, but I really don't think he will. And I've gotten to that place, or even in my own personal life, where I think, yeah, there was a day in my childhood where I thought superheroes could do anything, but even for myself, I know that I've grown out of that place of thinking that God can do anything, and I explain it away, and I put disclaimers on it. But the reality is this. God can heal. God can do the miraculous. God can intervene at any moment for any purpose to accomplish whatever it is that he may want to do. The question is, will he? I don't know at times. If you look at much in the New Testament, there's an amazing amount of suffering, an amazing amount of persecution, amazing amount of experiences and circumstances that God does not overturn, but he accomplishes things even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of persecution. And for you this morning, I want to say, if you're sitting there with the things you think in your life, you go, hey, if God could just change this, if God could just remove this barrier, if God could move in a new and a deeper way here in this person's life, in my life, or in this situation, what would that be? Do you believe that he can? Do you truly believe that he can? That he can intervene and that he can accomplish what you cannot explain and what you cannot even dream? Do you believe that? For me, it's hard to believe that. Maturity and education has continued to move me in a place where it's just harder and harder to believe that. And yet I think the scriptures are calling you and I to remember afresh that he can. <laughs> that he can heal, that he's the God, not just of Moses and Jacob and Abraham where they saw incredible things, but he's the God for you and I today who's still moving in the miraculous and still accomplishing things beyond our imagination. The question is, will we believe that he can and will we get to be a part of it? The question is, even if you believe that he can, there are times though that he may not, right? There are times that he may not heal. There are times that he may not move and and remove a a barrier or remove an obstacle that is crushing you or uh, disappointing you or discouraging you. And the question then becomes more, well, what is he maybe trying to do in the midst of that? God can accomplish much in the midst of miracles, but he can also accomplish much in the midst of martyrdom. The book of Acts will begin with a crazy amount of miracles throughout, but it will end with martyrdom as many of the apostles will go to the cross and be crucified in the same manner that Jesus was. And what God accomplishes in the midst of martyrdom and what he accomplishes in the midst of persecution and suffering is even as grand as what he can accomplish even through miracles. Miracles themselves do not even necessarily convince and guarantee that someone will respond in faith to him, right? There are times in the midst of the miracles that we see over and over again that people see it and they go, I don't think so, Even the miraculous doesn't overturn people's skepticism at times. So I want to encourage you that sometimes God may not come in and overturn things. He may not come in in miraculous ways that bring shock and awe. But God is still at work. And he's still moving to accomplish something that has a purpose in your life, in my life, in my character, in his plan, and his purpose. And we may not see it, but we can trust him because he can. And as he chooses not to at times, we can remember that he's sovereign, that he has a purpose, and that he's doing something. What it is, sometimes it's hard to see. But he's a God who can. 
And for some of us, I think we need to be stretched in a fresh way to remember that he can move in ways beyond our expectation, that our education, our experience aside, we need a fresh reminder that the God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. The God who resurrected Jesus Christ is still the God who can resurrect us from our sins, from our struggles, and from our insecurities, that he can accomplish anything that he would desire to if it would be his will. And so whether it's his will as to what he will accomplish, even if he doesn't move in the miraculous and he allows the circumstances to continue to cause us to suffer and to struggle, Remembering that he's still accomplishing something in that and to still believe that he's sovereign and that he's good. So let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That you are the God of Moses who would part the Red Sea and would bring all of Israel into an exodus and a great picture of the kind of deliverance that you're bringing us to as well if we know your son, Jesus Christ. Father, for a a son of David who would be crucified and resurrected, we've seen the miraculous. We believe it to be true. We believe it in the scriptures. And yet when it comes to our lives, there are so many times we just don't believe it. We think of of an old book, of a past piece of literature, of an archaic time. And Lord, I think for some of us, we need a fresh reminder that you are that same God. That you're still strong, you're still potent, you're still able to move and accomplish miraculous and extraordinary things. And Father, I pray for some of us that you would awaken us, refresh us to believe bigger, to pray longer and pray deeper, and to ask you to move and to intervene in ways beyond our anticipation and our expectation, believing that you can. And Father, I pray in the times that you don't, Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd give us purpose, that you'd give us direction, knowing what it is that you are trying to do, the ways that you're trying to grow our character and the purposes that you may have, even if we cannot see. Allow our faith not to fail. Allow us not to explain away the lack of the miraculous thinking that you can't, but that you can. Father, I pray that you give us wisdom as we look at our own things in our lives where we're disappointed, where we're discouraged, where we're so begging and so desirous to see you move and to step in, whether it's with family, whether it's with friends, or whether it's things that we're tasked with and that we're trying to do. Father, I pray that you would show us that you can, that you could do far more beyond anything that we can expect. Father, I pray that you'd help us to pray deeper, to pray bigger, to believe even as we pray that you can. And whether you will or not, Lord, I pray that you expand our faith, you expand our perspective and our trust in you, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here this morning. It's great to see you guys and we'll see you guys next week.